Luke chapter 6. Turn in the Word of God, please, to Luke chapter 6. Tremendous words, again. The standing we have, the position that is ours in Christ, and the expectation that the hymn writer Wesley had changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. We're not static. There should be a change going on. And as we come to Luke chapter 6, that I believe is evident, (laughs) ought to be evident, that there is a need for ongoing change and transformation and growth. And I trust the Lord will help us as we look at His Word again this evening. Luke chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 27 this evening. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, let's hear the Word of the Lord. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Not a him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Amen. May the Lord bless his word, give light to us. And let's pray for that light in these moments as we come to the Scriptures. Lord, we would ask Thee to finish then Thy new creation. We pray for the ongoing work of the Spirit that will bring us finally to the experience of being transformed. When this vile body shall be made like unto His glorious body, 
But don't let us, don't let us be transformed from where we are today. But may we be even more like him before that transformation takes place. God, give us, give us hearts that beat in time with thy heart. Change us from glory into glory. By the Spirit of God, we have no power. We have no strength. We are a weak, a feeble folk. But we trust Thee. And I pray that this congregation, oh God, let it be that even five, ten years from today, would be distinctly even more like Christ. Oh God, that thou would just take us onward and upward. And do that often unseen work and yet real work in all our hearts. So hear our prayers. And again, give that prophetic help by the Spirit, that word and season, that message for the lost, for the saved. And build thy church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have pondered over these verses again in the past week, I've come to a a feeling, an experience that I've had before, though uh, not in some time perhaps, at least to the degree that I'm feeling it at present. When I was in Calgary, I went through the entirety of the Gospel of John. And that was a privilege. It was wonderful. And some portions of John aren't particularly easy, not just in understanding them, but more, how do you preach this? And when I came to John chapter 5 and started wading through the language of John chapter 5, it just, it seemed like the water was just getting higher and higher every week I was trying to prepare. And I almost felt at times like I'm really in over my head here. Not because, again, they're, they're, they're the tools to understand the text. But how do you communicate it? And how do you communicate it effectively? And how do you get it across so people grasp it in a way that is meaningful and life-changing? And so that was, that was my experience then. Well, look, six has kind of brought me to a similar experience. I, just this past week going through it, I have felt the height of the waters increasing <laughs> to the point that I'm, you kind of wonder, look, I, I just kind of want, want to back away now <laughs> and maybe come back to this another time, but... Here we are, and we will do our best. What we find in the language of Luke 6 is not necessarily unique, or even in one sense difficult. It it is. It actually does come with its own complexities. And part of the complexity of Luke chapter 6 and this portion where we find ourselves is really that as you read it, you find yourself tempted to make all sorts of, of qualifying statements. And as I said last week, the last thing I want to do is to preach this text in a way that makes it really easy to accept. Not that I want to make it harder than it is, but neither do I want to remove the sting that the Lord intended for His hearers when He preached these words. I would be unfaithful if I brought it in a way that was softer than He intended. At the same time, I'd be unfaithful if I brought it more firmly or more sharp than it ought to be. 
But when you, when you look at the language, immediately you start to think about qualifying it in various ways. And I think at some point I will, maybe next week or I don't know, the week after, I might just take a time to, to put down what this passage teaches just in statements. And in that way, some of it may become more clear. But what the Lord is bringing out here is not new. It's not, not new teaching. The Lord has, from the beginning, called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, it was a natural thing, really. It's only by sin that we would ever militate against it. But even in the natural order of things, since we all come from the same Father, there is this distinct sense of connection. And though we have lost much of it because of the passing of time and the spreading of humanity, obviously in those first years after the world was created, there was a distinct sense of being one family, wasn't there? And that made the, the, the sin of Cain all the more horrific. He slew his brother. But the sense of being all connected and therefore recognizing we're all image bearers of God and viewing one another in a way that therefore would, would almost by implication we would understand some of the things the Lord teaches here, yet that gets lost. As I say, with the passing of time and the spreading of humanity and the corrupting influence of sin and our nature, we need to be taught this, be pulled back to understand this. So it's not necessarily new. And for the Jews, again, it wasn't necessarily new, but the, the Jews, many of them, had, had removed some of the sting of even the teaching of Scripture. When you read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that the Lord often says, um, He refers back to what you've been told. You've heard that it has been said, I think on five occasions he uses that language because he is drawing out something that was taught in Scripture but was misunderstood by the Jews. And so you've heard this. Often he would say it is written, but he didn't say it on those five occasions, if I'm correct in saying it's five. I think it's five. He didn't say it on those times. He said, you have heard. The idea is this is what you've been taught. This is what the rabbis keep saying. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. And Jesus elevates Scripture and gives a clear understanding on what the Word of God actually teaches. And Luke 6 here is similar. The Jews wanted to remove the sting of the language, narrow the meaning, for example, of the word neighbor. We'll get to that when we come to Luke chapter 10 and the Good Samaritan. Well, well, who's my neighbor? Who is he? And so they had this concept of a neighbor that had removed much of their responsibility to their neighbor. So narrowly did they see who their neighbor was. So Christ is telling us here to love our enemies. Verse 27, I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. That's what I'm calling you to do. The rabbis may say something else, but I say love your enemies. And as we have considered this, we have given it the broad title, the heart of Christian ethics. The heart of Christian ethics, because if you can get this, you get the sense of what the Lord calls us to be. It's not everything. It's not everything. And that's why you find yourself coming up with these qualifying statements, because there are other scriptures that make you think, well, well how does this fit in? And we'll address some of that, but that the heart of it is here. The heart of how we are to live is found in this language. We have seen the description of love that is given in verse 27 and 28. First of all, that love is seen in what we do. Do good to them which hate you. 
Love is seen in what we say, bless them that curse you. Love is seen in what we pray, pray for them which despitefully use you. This is very helpful. If we imbibe this, it's so familiar to us and yet seldom really practiced. And the point of we, we know it, but in the heat of when it needs to be applied, that's where our problem is. And again, we begin to excuse ourselves from our responsibility. So love is described in verse 27 and 28. But more details then are given when you come to verse 29 and following. So we have the details of love. And we considered this last Lord's Day. And I'll quickly just go through some of those details first. That the details of love uh, cover what to do when our character is attacked. Verse 29, unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. This is our character being attacked. We sought to help you understand that. The action here was one that was common and wasn't so much about causing pain as it was about humbling or shaming an individual. So you'd take your right hand and you'd come across their cheek by, with the back of your hand in a way to shame them, humble them in your presence. And, and what we, we don't do that today in the way that it would have been done then, but the same thing goes on with our words. And the whole point then is to understand that when your character is being attacked, when your integrity is under attack, be very careful. The greatest power you possess in any personal conflict is your ability to end it. Not to carry it out, not to win it. Christ says the greatest power you have is to end the conflict. Don't carry it on. Not tit for tat, not fighting fire with fire. There's an arsonist in the heart of every sinner who likes to fight fire with fire. But the gospel is a fire hydrant. It enables us to suffer shame rather than incite a conflict. And this is what the Lord is calling us to do. What to do when our character is attacked. What to do when our property is threatened. And him that taketh away thy cloak forbid not to take thy coat also. The heart of this is similar. Except instead of it being a threat upon our character, it's a threat upon our property. And that can happen. And our Lord says, if someone wants to sue you for your cloak, give it to him rather than go to war with him over it. If you can, if you can sacrifice it without removing yourself from your responsibilities to your family. Again, this is where you start qualifying it, but we need to keep it. We need to have some qualifying understanding of the statements. I'm not to neglect my family over some wretch who comes and tries to take advantage of me, but if I have the liberty and the power to be able to give it rather than go to war over it, then I should do so. If it helps to satisfy him to give my coat also, then go ahead and do it rather than enter into a fight. If you're in a position where your property is threatened and you, you have the advantage, the position, being able to, to give in rather than go to war over the head of it, then go ahead and do it. Don't fight over every little thing. Of course, the Lord said this, but then you come into the New Testament and you find those in Corinth who are, who are taking one another to court. Christians warring with one another within the legal system. And Paul has to address it. This, this should not be so. How is it that the, 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 the legal system, the, the unregenerate in the legal system, you appear to think have greater sense to help in this matter than you, who will one day 
judge angels. You should be able to work these things out yourself. And especially with this meek spirit that is to be reflected by believers, not always fighting. Again, for our rights, always fighting for our rights. There are times when, especially when it will bring peace, just, just let it go. What to do when our help is requested? Give to every man that asketh of thee. Again, to hold back money because the survival of our family depends on it is legitimate. To prioritize giving to God's people in their need over the needs of the unregenerate is encouraged. But to hold back money from someone in need for the sole reason that they are our personal enemies or don't hold all our values or some other personal trait that distinguishes them from us so that we don't particularly like, that is wrong. The Lord wants us to help when we're asked. Again, rabbis narrowed their neighbor. Their help only went to those that they would naturally want to help, which is part of them what the Lord goes on to address. You're just like sinners. You're just like people who don't have any change of heart. You're no different from them when you do that. But he says, give to every man. Don't cut men out. Be willing to give to every man who has a particular need. Now, last week I said that I've given money at times not because I was absolutely sure of the need, but because I'd rather be without the money than have a hard heart and disobey the Lord. And again, I walked away thinking, you know, I really should have qualified that because I'm wondering if someone is walking out of here thinking, you know when he gets those emails with someone looking for money? And he feels, does he just give them money because he doesn't know? No, I don't. <laughs> just to make that plain, I don't do that. Again, there, there, I, I trust there's a measure of common sense in this. I will give to those that I trust, or those endorsed by those I trust, or I will give to those that I have personally met. And upon hearing their story, am I doing my best to discern the veracity of their need, then I may give as well. And those certain times of battle where you kind of want, if, if, if this is really true, you know you should help. And you can't really maybe discern at times that it seems true to the best of your ability. You can, it appears to be true and right. And you give. I think that's what's asked of us here. It's not asking for bad stewardship, but sacrificial stewardship. Being willing to sacrifice. This is what the followers of our Lord are to do. And then we also consider what to do when our property is lost. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. As I said last week, I don't think this is theft. I think this is a case where someone borrows something with the intention of returning it, but they don't. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, it deals with... Uh, that borrowing and being in debt and, and obviously there was a need to pay it back but there was that seventh year the year when slaves were allowed to go free was also a year when debts were wiped clean now there's debate about whether or not that seventh year was basically a reprieve and when you came, come into the following year you still had to pay your debt or whether that meant there was an absolute removal of the debt and I'm inclined to think, and though there's a good man who differ in this, I'm inclined to think it was an absolute wiping the slate clean of the debt. And of course, that would, that would dictate some things that you would do if you were a year away from the, 
from that time, from the seventh year, you wouldn't go around loaning people money that you know they wouldn't be able to pay back in a year. You'd analyze it carefully. You would look at it and judge and discern whether or not the person was in a position to pay back the debt. But anyway, that's, that's it. If, if someone removes from you wealth that they intended to give back, property that was intended to be returned, but they're unable, then don't go pressing for it. Don't take them to court over it. Don't start a whole row over it. Of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Don't go after and hunt him down. So we've covered all that. We come then to the fifth part of this, of the details of love, in verse 31, where we have what to do in every scenario. What to do in every scenario. Here is kind of the blanket statement. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. The golden rule, as it's commonly referred to. Critics of Christianity like to point out that this did not originate with Jesus. I wish Christians would stop acting like Jesus came up with this first. He didn't. And there's an element of truth in that. You read through the history of the ancient religions, there is reference to language statements that are very similar to this. And although it would take more extensive research than I have time for, most, if not all, of the preceding statements that are similar to this statement are placed in the negative. They are not placed in the positive as Jesus states it here. So they will say things like, what you do not want done to yourself, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Emphasis is on the negative. So it's a call to go through your life without inflicting hurt upon others. And that's sometimes the language used. Don't go around hurting people. As you would not want to be hurt, so do not hurt others. And that is passive, really. is an emphasis on passivity, that we aren't to impinge on anyone in a hurtful way, so we glide through life making sure we're not causing harm. But Jesus states it positively, which I think, though I, uh, this observation may have more significance than I can think about in the time I have, but I think the positive statement of it by Jesus has, has a weightier sense of responsibility. Rather than don't do what you would not want done to you, he's calling us, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. It's called a positive action. What you would want men to go around doing to you, that's what I want you to do. Not just therefore in a passive way, not causing harm, but actively doing good. And I think, I think there's a distinction there. Maybe argued, but I think therefore Jesus' statement comes with more power. Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, apparently criticized the golden rule for not being sensitive to differences of situation. He noted that a prisoner duly convicted of a crime could appeal to the golden rule while asking the judge to release him, pointing out that the judge would not want anyone else to send him to prison so he should not do so to others. <laughs> you wonder how these men get known as philosophers. Really? Christ's application, at least, and I don't know about all the other religions, but Christ's application is in the context of personal relationships. This is personal, interpersonal relationships. If you miss that, then there's not much hope for you in your comprehension. The Lord Jesus is dealing with how we deal with personal hurts face to face. Turn for a minute to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. 
Romans 12, we'll read from verse 14. And notice, and I could go further up, but especially from verse 14, Paul is strongly drawing from the portion that we're considering at the minute. And I want you to pay attention to his clear exposition. Paul is stating the clear implication of the language of the Lord Jesus. He has gotten it. He has grasped it. Now he's teaching it in very terse terms. Romans 12 verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. There's the preacher using repetition. Sometimes it's needed. You think the first statement's enough, but sometimes you just need to hammer it home. Or as W.P. Nicholson talked about, rubbing it in. You need to rub it in. God's people don't always get it. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. All men, every man that asketh of thee, condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. This is actively doing what is possible, whatever lies in you. Does that know what Jesus is teaching? Instead of fighting fire with fire, as much as it's possible, if it be possible, as much as lies in you, as much as grace enables you, please resist the temptation to do what comes natural. Instead, do what grace would lead you to do. Live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, I note this, avenge not yourselves, turn the other cheek, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. There is the interpersonal relationship. There is when you're wronged, here's how to deal with it. Be not overcome of evil. Overcome evil with good. The language of the Lord in Luke 6. Paul drives it home. But let us not miss something very important that is somehow, in a certain way, clouded by chapter divisions. Because we go straight in then to Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. What has he been saying? Don't render evil for evil. Don't be overcome of evil. But there are people in the society rightly ordered that will deal with evil. Is there not a connection? I think so. There has to be. And so the application of Luke 6 leads straight into the place of civil government. And there is then, within the words of Christ, a submission to procedure and providence. 
I'm not given the place to judge men. And he'll get to that aspect. Judge not. We'll get there eventually. I am not in that place of authority. That is not my responsibility. If you're in the kingdom of Christ, instead of rendering evil for evil, instead of fighting fire with fire, instead of trying to get your own back, and always defending your cause and your rights and saying, I have the right to retaliate. Let matters be played out by providence and also by, when appropriate, the intervention of the civil authorities who may be the very instrument that brings vengeance upon wrongdoers at times. The golden rule. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Reams have been written about it. Sermon after sermon could deal with the implications of it, but let us get it into our hearts and let us practice it. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Of course, again, there's other criticism. They say, well, well, hang on a minute. Now you're saying that whatever you want, however you want to be treated, treat others in the same way. But what if there are cultural differences? And some get very specific. And for example, you may like shellfish. And you would like for someone to prepare for you a big plate of shellfish. And you think, my Jewish neighbor would, if I was to treat him how I would like to be treated, he would like a big plate of shellfish. So you go there with shellfish and he's just horrified. Are you trying to offend me? I don't want your shellfish. I don't eat shellfish. And you say, well, then it breaks down. You're trying to treat others as you would like to be treated. The golden rule breaks down. But, but it doesn't. The golden rule also, or this text also, instead of using the common term of identifying it, what the Lord is saying here even to, applies in terms of culture. If I want someone to treat me in a certain way, I would expect them to take into consideration Various cultural differences that there may be between us. And if he was truly thinking in the right way and applying this, he would also consider the cultural difference. So when you apply it very narrowly and specifically, it can break down. But when you keep the general spirit of it, it doesn't. If I think it's my Jewish neighbor, if I was Jewish, how would I want to be treated? If I didn't eat shellfish, the last thing I'd want was a plate of shellfish. I will treat him in consideration of the cultural differences. So, again, silly nonsense that comes out against what our Lord taught. If you want, again, a scriptural breakdown without all the reams of stuff that has been written about this, if you want a scriptural short answer to the application of verse 31, you simply turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you read there, Charity suffereth long. And is kind. And you read through that and you realize that that's really, at least generally anyway, is, is, is expounding our treatment of people. 
in exactly the way I do. I want people to suffer long with me. I want them to suffer with me as the sinner that I am. I want them to be kind. I don't want them to be envious or vaunt themselves or be puffed up. I don't want them to behave themselves unseemly or seek their own or be easily provoked and think evil and rejoice in iniquity and hate the truth. I want them to express these things, to, to show forth, forth these things, and, and that is what the Lord would call us to do. So when you're wondering, how does someone want to be treated? You're in a conundrum. How am I to apply, verse 31, as you would that men should do to you, and you want a little more exposition of it? Go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read through it and just do that. And I would imagine that would cover most of our experiences. We'll return to verse 31 in due course. There's more for it to say as we progress through the language of this chapter. But I want us then to come to verse 32 and following. We've seen the description of love and the details of love. We now come to the distinction of love. The distinction of it. Verse 32. For if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your rewards shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, unto the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful." Are you feeling the weight of the text yet? (laughs) Is your heart being plowed up? The Lord has looked at us and our inner man earlier in the chapter. Now he's exposing our practices, how we live our lives. And we come then to the distinction of love. And the first thing I would say as we look at these verses is that Christian love is not distinguished by a word. Christian love is not distinguished by a word. Often when preachers, Christians, try to understand love, so what, then what am I doing to my enemies here? Love your enemies. What, what's all this talk of love? What does it mean? What, what's it all about? You, you will have heard, I am I'm quite sure you have heard, people referring to, well, well, this is agape. And it's calling us then to agape, a word that uniquely describes the love of God for sinners, the love that we are to emulate. And perhaps even then the statement, the world knows nothing of agape. Have you heard things like that? The world knows nothing about agape. Sounds nice. It's a very easy way to try to define love and help us as Christian people to say, this is what love is, agape. But it breaks down right here in this passage. It doesn't make any sense when you read this passage and you read it in the original. Verse 32. If ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also agape those that agape them. That's the language. Sinners. Jesus uses the term to make it distinct from his audience in terms of helping them understand that there are people out there who do not live by any principle or rule that they would recognize. Sinners. 
the unregenerate, the unsaved, the people who don't care what God thinks. They agape those that agape them. You've seen this. And maybe when you've heard language like, you know, agape love, this unconditional love is, is uh, only known and expressed by Christians or in the church. And the world out there knows nothing about it. And you've heard things like that. And then you've looked at things in the world and you said, well, that doesn't make any sense really. You see things happen in the world by unregenerate people. They, they do things at times that, that bring us conviction, maybe even shame. We're amazed at the level of sacrifice at times the unregenerate can show. We lament at times that people in our neighborhoods who don't profess to love Christ display certain affections and love and courage and concern that ought to make us feel guilty to take the name of Christ because we don't come to the level that they show. Everyone here, I imagine, understands that to be the case. You wonder what's going on. Well, you have it right here. They can know this agape love. There are four Greek words for love in the New Testament. I'm not going to get into all of them and look at various verses where they're used, but there's phileo, that's friendship or brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of love. Phileo, storge, familial love. Eros is a romantic love, and agape, which is a committed, selfless love. And the world can show that. It can show a committed, selfless love. Men on the battlefield, soldiers, marines, other contexts where people are living and working shoulder to shoulder, other religions even, where they manifest a committed love towards one another. We're not, we, this is not unique to us. So none of the words are distinctly Christian. Christian love is not distinguished by a word. That's my point. I'm trying to get rid of in your mind any false ideas that have been put there by books and sermons that have wrongly taught you about agape. Christian love is not distinguished by a word. And of course, the whole passage would argue that case. Because otherwise the Lord could summarize the statement with just saying one word. So that brings us secondly to see that Christian love is distinguished by family likeness. It is distinguished by family likeness. That is what this portion is pointing out. Let's read it again. If ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. This is committed selfless love. If you show committed selfless love to those who show committed selfless love to you, what's the difference? Sinners also show committed selfless love to those that have a committed selfless, selfless love for them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? Sinners also do even the same. There's no distinguishing here if we, if we live, and this is the bar of our distinction. This is the level we're called to. We're, we're exactly the same as the decent, if we can use that term, people of the world. If you lend 
to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. Very good. Now your morality is as good as anyone who owns a bank. <laughs> I'll say no more there. It's not exactly a very high standard, is it? And this is the point. This is not what distinguishes you. So he emphasizes again. Love ye your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. Don't be expecting good back to you. Don't be expecting or depending upon the money coming back to you. And your reward shall be great. This is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in. Your reward shall be great. Will you ever see it this side of eternity? I don't know. Often the Lord is pleased. Those that honor him, he will honor and he will manifest it. Those that are faithful and diligent in their work, he will put before kings. There are different scriptures that sometimes, they, well, they indicate on occasion that people will be elevated because of their diligence, and because of their faithfulness. But ultimately, I think there is a thought here to future reward. It is a recognition of the reward that we will obtain in glory. And some Christians, I've touched on this at other times I say it again, however, sometimes Christians can be afraid of living life in light of a future reward because it seems kind of selfish. So I'm motivated just by reward. No, not just by reward. You're motivated because your Savior commands you. You're motivated because you've submitted and given your allegiance to Christ. That's a motivation. And in His mercy... In his mercy, additionally, he says, you do what I ask you to do. You're faithful. There will be reward. There will be an eternal reward. Christian, let your faith rise and seize on that. Because this is a motivation we diminish. And it's not meant to be the case. We're also meant to be motivated by a sense of an understanding that in eternity to come, when I stand before God, there will be reward for my perseverance, for my faithfulness, for my commitment to Christ, even against the odds at times. There will be reward. We do this with our children. Some might say it's not right to motivate children by, you know, just tell them, do it because I told you. Well, there's a place for that. Children need to learn to do that, and we do that, don't we? We ask them to do things for nothing in return except that we ask them to do it, and we expect them to do it immediately. But we also naturally drift, I believe. We naturally drift to an understanding of giving instruction to our children and say, if you do that, I'll give you this. And we have no problem with it. Some modern psychology, some Fools who haven't thought about it for any length of time say, oh, that's a wrong motivation to, to teach our children. It's not. It is not. <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? You want to make it all socialist? Is that, is that what you're after? Everyone in the same playing field, communist society, we all live communal. No, you know that's wrong. It's not scriptural. God rewards. He has no problem rewarding. Jesus Christ we are the product. We are the reward of the sacrifice of Christ. He is rewarded. 
inherited his people by the sacrifice of himself. He's going to reward you. God will reward you. So you have in mind in those times when it's really hard, and this is a help to us, we're not just submitting in blind submission to Christ, but there I am suffering in front of someone who's trying to take advantage of me, beating me, and whatever they're seeking to do to militate against my character or my property. And I, I am encouraged, I'm encouraged to let go of the temporal and embrace the eternal. This isn't my reward here. I can let this go. I'm going to let it go. And to fill my hands, instead of filling it with the stuff that I have here in this life, instead of holding on to it as if it's the only thing that matters, I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to seize on the eternal. There will be a reward. Future blessings. Yet, to some degree, kept from our view. That will be bestowed upon the people of God. Your reward shall be great. And you shall be the children of the highest. Now, let's be careful, because you could read this and imagine, if I do everything Jesus says here, it will make me a Christian. That's not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. In John chapter 1, we are told there, how we become children of God. In John 1 verse 12. Christ came unto his own, his own received him not. We're told in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. What's it saying? As many as received him, that just receiving, just receiving the message, receiving Christ, beholding the Lamb, recognizing that he's the answer for our sin, we receive him by faith, and he gives the power, he gives the authority, he gives the right to declare yourself or to be the children of God. It is upon the receiving that we have the power to become the sons of God. It is upon the receiving that we're given the right and authority to be the sons of God. And underline that, even to them that believe in his name, those that believe in his name have the right and authority to become the sons of God. And it is then further hammered home in verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Pulling the carpet from under every argument that would look to man to save himself. The apostle makes it plain. They're born not of blood. It's not by birth. It's not by family line. Not by the will of the flesh. Not by any effort or any manifestation or product of the flesh, or by the will of man, the sheer effort and force of himself. It is all of God. You're born of God. Every Christian here was born of God. You became the child of the highest by an act, a sovereign act of God. Now let me stop and say to you, if you're not saved, you cannot save yourself. 
Nothing you can do can save yourself. I want every boy and girl to understand this. I want every adult to understand it. I want you all to grasp it. You cannot save yourself. Salvation is a gift to be received, not something you do. It is received. Christ died. You need to receive it and see there he died for me. I'm in the enemy of God. I'm cut off from God. I have no warrant to come near to God. I have no right to go to heaven. I am not a Christian until by faith I receive Christ. I lay hold on Christ. I make my argument before a holy God, Christ. I rest there. You say, is that not something you're doing? Well, not really. It is something you simply look to the reality of what is done and you believe in it. And the very, very fact that occurs is an act of God. Love ye your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. The whole point of this is to be distinguished by family likeness. Think of the most perfect father who ever lived. Every child to that father, you would look on and you would say to yourself, surely they want to follow in their father's footsteps. They are perfect. They have perfectly led. Now, every father here, the humbling reality amidst all the nice things and sentiments that come towards fathers and fathers day. Every father wishes they were as true consistently as they are expressed on Father's Day. But hypothetically, you have a perfect father. You imagine surely the children will follow in the footsteps of their father. Surely they would want to. And that is what the Lord is getting at. If you're part of my kingdom, if you're under my rule, my will is to do the will of him that sent me. Complete commitment. I call you to the same. This is why I'm asking you to love your enemies. I want you to have a family likeness. If you do everything the world does, verse 32 and following, you're not distinct. You're like everyone else. Does God call us to be different? Yes, He does. Not by wearing weird clothes and identifying a certain point in the past where they they had perfect, they wore garments that were the most godly, we're going to kind of cement ourselves into that time. That's Islam. Distinguished by their garments being from the 8th century. But Christians are distinguished by this. By an impossible response 
to the most difficult of circumstances. That's why I don't want to remove the sting because the whole heart of it is this is hard, if not impossible. It's not meant to be easy. It's meant to make you distinct from the world, which is why it is so difficult. But this is how you give evidence that you belong to God. Because look at him. The end of verse 35. He is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Again, the qualifying statements flood in. Hang on a minute. Does the psalmist not say that God is angry with the wicked every day? (laughs) Yeah, he is. He's angry with the wicked every day. And yet he withholds so much of the judgment they deserve. He doesn't give them everything they deserve when they deserve it. He holds back. And he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. He is kind. Throw your mind back to the last time that you were unthankful, to the last time that you were evil. In fact, just see how those two words are pulled together. Unthankful and evil. Ingratitude is a heinous crime against God. And yet he is kind to such. And so verse 36 Brings it home. Be ye therefore merciful. Ah, there it is. Be merciful. You have received mercy. You have obtained mercy. You enjoy mercy. The sun rises and sets. The rain falls and withholds. Strength is given day by day. Unseen mercies bestowed upon you, innumerable. This is God's goodness to men, His common goodness to men. And He expects His people to show mercy as He shows mercy. When everything in your mind and heart is saying, No, here is what is just and right, I'm going to do what I have the right to do. He said, you're not reflecting your father. If he did that, we'd be gone, wiped out instantly. We'd all not be here. But we are. We are here. You're living, you're breathing, experiencing life at the hand of the mercy of God. He says, Jesus says, Be ye therefore merciful. This Christian love is distinguished by family likeness, not by a word. We are agape. We show agape love. We're different. No, they do that. They do that. But they don't do this. They don't show mercy where it's not deserved. Else it's not mercy. We are a merciful people. We have more to say on this. 
And we'll come to it again next week, God willing. But I trust that the main thrust has not been lost on any of us. May the Lord help us, beloved. And I prayed at the opening. I prayed it is not with any sense of criticism of where we are now or criticism of the past, but a genuine desire that five years from now, ten years from now, we would actually be more like Christ. Improving in all these areas for the glory of his name. Let's pray. As our heads are bowed, let me ask you, are you born of God? Are you the child of the highest? I don't care what family name you take. I don't care if you're Father holds office in the church or is known as a distinct Christian gentleman in the community. Your mother is an honorable person. They bathe you in scripture, send you to Christian school, bring you to church, teach you the things of God. Are you born of the Spirit? Are you born again? Are your sins forgiven? Do you have any desire to live in the way that we have considered tonight? Do you feel any conviction? I trust if you're here tonight without Christ that you will give serious consideration to this. The last thing I would want is for you to go away and think, that was a great message about how we should live, I'm going to try harder. That's not the point. You need to be born of the Spirit before you can even begin to understand the motivation behind the words of Christ. May the Lord save you. Our God, we thank Thee again for Thy Word. It does ply us up, expose our selfishness and challenge our preconceived notions. And whatever may be our failures of the past or the present, we pray for grace to grow. Leave us not to ourselves, O God. We are a people in need. And we know not just when, by thy divine appointment, we will be called to put these things into action, but oh, how we pray that it will come easily to us, that grace will so overcome the corrupt carnal nature. Help us to catch ourselves before we fall foul to temptation and give in to the carnal desires of the flesh. Help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to be like Christ. Part us in thy fear and with thy favor. Whatever is ahead of us this week, may we have grace to live to the glory of thy name. May we show forth the wonder of thy saving work, and may men see our good works glorify our Father which is in heaven. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.